Uh, Father, we're thankful. Uh, What a joy to be together, to open your word, uh, to ask for your kind assistance that um, you would meet us through your spirit as uh, we learn the Bible and and not just learn facts and and information, but to know you, uh, to understand more of who you are and how you think and how reality truly is because you alone see reality perfectly. And so to to understand your perspective is to understand the right perspective and how critical that is, especially as we think about caring for people, that if we misinterpret what's going on, that we, we will not care for them well. So give us grace, especially as we think about challenging case studies and, and other scenarios uh, like the one we have before us. And uh, again, thank you for my brothers and sisters. Give us grace uh, for these long hours, and um, but we're grateful to be together. In Jesus' name, amen. I told track one that the weather outside is frightful, but the time in the Word of God inside is delightful. And we, and we, need, we need to work on uh, the fire. To have a fireside chat would be pretty cool, wouldn't it? So, what's that? What did you say? Yeah, chestnuts might be distracting. Roasting on an open fire, you know, that wouldn't be good. So, Okay, so here's, here's what we're going to talk about. 13 says this, how would you respond to this question? Uh, this looks back to the case study with Sarah. I think we provided the case studies back in weekend one, so you have those uh, in the exams. And I remember she's uh, horribly depressed six months ago. She's talked to friends. They have encouraged her to get on an antidepressant. And she asks you in question 13, do you think, biblical counselor, I should see my doctor about taking an antidepressant? So we're going to deal with that part. And then a question that goes with that same case study, carefully describe whether and how you would want to work with a physician to help Sarah through this ordeal. As part of your answer to this specific question, describe in general terms how you believe biblical counselors should cooperate with medical professionals. Okay, so we're going to try to walk and chew gum at the same time by addressing both of those. The first question will lean heavily on the material we've already covered uh, in a previous weekend on depression and how we think about depression. So we'll kind of wave our hands at that review some of the slides because I know that was a a month or so ago and then what we'll do is we'll look in more detail at uh, working with a physician now one thing that's unique about question 13 and there are actually two questions now on the ACBC counseling exam where you are writing the answer in the first person and if you slept through English like I did as a kid what that means is you're going to answer as if you were talking to the counselee So for 13, your answer should start something like this. Sarah, I'm so thankful that you're here in counseling or something like that. But it it should sound like I'm eavesdropping on a conversation between you and Sarah in the counseling room. You don't have to set it up. You don't have to give any introduction. You don't have space for that. Just launch into what you would tell her. Okay? So uh, let's just review. How do we think about antidepressants? And this this touches base with, um, again, our talk on depression. But just some questions that that this 
This actual counseling question raises some issues like this. How does a biblical counselor think about psychotropic medication? When does a biblical counselor recommend medicine? And how does a biblical counselor minister the scripture in such a way as to help a counselee see and embrace biblical truth when others are giving contrary advice? And I don't know if her friends are pressuring her or not, but but you guys know that, that the worst enemy of the biblical counselor is the well-meaning but misguided friend that's giving your counselee advice. I just had a case this last week. I was working with a student, and um, the student says, yeah, so my uh, female counselor, my, my gal's coming to me, and I found out this last week that um, uh, I guess she's also seeing some other counselor therapist person. And it's like, okay, well, that's actually pretty common, actually. Uh, in, in the abundance of counselors, plans succeed. That's in the Bible somewhere, right? So we're going to get a biblical counselor, an integrationist, and a, an EMDR technician, or whatever, right? That's not what we're going to do. <laughs> but, um, but, but the point is, whether it's a, a, another professional, or whether it is a mom, or a sister, or a girlfriend, or this is true for guys too, right? And, you know, the guy at the office that went through a similar deal, and he, and he gives advice. So you need to be careful about that. So we're going to think through what does that look like um, when there's other contrary advice that's given there, okay? Uh, one review just very quickly, psychosomatics. Remember, that is the relationship between the body and the spirit, the body and the soul. Here's our diagram that we looked at. Hopefully this looks familiar. As we think about the way that God put together human beings, we recognize that there is an outer man and an inner man. The inner man, of course, uh, we can call it the heart or the mind or the spirit. And uh, things like desires, uh, thoughts, beliefs, attitudes, choices, those are actions, processes of the inner man. And that inner man is what's driving the body, which includes, of course, the brain having executive function over the rest of the body. And so we recognize the inner man's driving the outer man in terms of choices and desires. But the outer man, of course, is feedbacking, give, giving uh, feedback or affecting, we might say, the inner man in, uh, in those ways. So um, that's our anthropology picture. And uh, so just to, to fill in a couple of blanks by way of review, uh, the mind or heart is the mission control center. Uh, anybody know what's happening tomorrow morning in Cape Canaveral? It was supposed to happen this morning. The SpaceX heavy booster rocket. Yeah, only the second time they've launched this thing. What's that? Yeah, they're all trials. We're not sending anybody to the moon or anybody out. But but um, no, this is this is the you've seen SpaceX. I mean, they send up rockets. Seems like every day now. This is the big heavy booster, super duper thing. Uh, they've got a um, it's it's actually more. It looks like a bullet. Actually, it's more than a capsule. Uh, but uh, that is, the second launch is set to go in the morning. They had to take the thing apart and replace some actuators and stuff like that. Uh, all that to say, we can nerd out all we want on space and SpaceX. If that's not your game, that's fine. But just know that your inner man functions as a similar mission control center over the whole enterprise that is your life, your, your body, your responses. Uh, Welch there helps us to remind us that our minds are the initiators of moral action. Uh, 
and then uh, the body is the mediator of that moral action. Um, I was talking to the kids the other night. I was actually teaching psychosomatics to fifth graders the other night. I'd never done that before. It was awesome. It was it was terrific. And um, and uh, I, I told them, I said, you know, if if one of my boys gets angry at his brother because you know there's some huge moral breach like you know a stolen lego part or something like that right and he hauls off and just boom just smacks him across the cheek i don't go up to my son grab his hand and say bad hand bad what are you right We, we don't do that because that that action of violence though the hand and arm are implicated in the act of violence the body is simply the mediator of that moral action right the body is carrying out the orders it's my son's person that needs rebuke. It's his inner man, so to speak, not his body. And that's all that he's saying. Now, that's simple to see, isn't it? But when you move into Alzheimer's disease, when you move into addiction, when you move into depression, do not abandon your theology simply because the case is more difficult. And that's what people do. That's what Christians do. They get to a hard case and they forget this. And they hear another view in the world that says, oh, you know, you're, it's the body. The body is the problem. And while the body may be implicated in some way, the body is never the initiator of moral action according to Scripture. You won't, you won't find any... I, I did this. You won't find any example in the Bible where God tells a person's body to repent. It's not there. But you will see countless examples of God calling the person to repent in their heart over some moral action. So Welch's term, the body is the equipment for the heart. And then uh, the quote that uh, we looked at last time, same quote. Now, while it's true that the, the inner man is the initiator of moral action, the body is the responder, and the body affects the heart through all of these uh, different situations here. Um, I mean, just in the last week, uh, man, I've, I've interacted with several people that are dealing with these sorts of things, physical, mental disabilities, physical injury. Um, got a friend going through Parkinson's disease right now. Uh, my, uh, my colleague and boss at the uh, Masters University just had a kidney transplant this last week. Um, and, it, you know, all these body issues have great effect on how we live and how we respond. And just because, just because we're saying the inner man drives the outer man, what we're not saying is the body's not important, right? The body is important, and you know and I know, and by 4.30 tomorrow afternoon, you're going to be going, uh, this body thing is legit, isn't it? Because it's going to be a wearied body by then. So the body definitely affects the heart, okay? Yet our takeaway is a person is always responsible in that way before God for how he or she is going to respond to those influences. The person's body, including the brain, cannot make a person sin in such a way that he is not responsible before God. Um, Another colleague, Dr. Greg Gifford, uh, he just released a podcast on the difference between the brain and the mind. What's the difference between the brain and the mind? Let's go back to the picture here. Where's the brain? Um, Pastor Keith, it's the picture that says brain. I know, I know, right? Right here. Where's the mind? This is the mind. 
right? It's another word for hard or inner man. So what Dr. Gifford is saying is we have to make a distinction between the brain and the mind. We can say the brain can be diseased, but the mind is not diseased the way that the brain is, right? And what's happening is there's a blurring of the line now where people, secularists, people that don't believe the Bible, and in some cases Christians that do say they believe the Bible but they're confused, what they're saying is somehow a a disease, a physical problem can actually make the inner man or the mind sick in a way that requires some sort of body medical intervention. And what Dr. Gifford is saying is he's not saying the heart isn't affected by things or the brain isn't affected by things. What he's saying is you have to keep those distinct. The the mind does not get diseased like the brain can be diseased. So that's that's worth, if you want to dig up his podcast, that's worth listening to. Um, and then Welch's quote here, the brain cannot make us sin. That's one um, statement. The corollary, that is the brain cannot keep a person from following Jesus in faith and obedience. So uh, our bodies, uh, though can, they can be limiting, they, they can't ultimately be determinative in a person's walk with God. Uh, if we look at the outside world, we, we have the naturalism, materialistic perspective where the body, the brain is all we have. There is no inner man. And this is, this is the anthropological model that secularists use to make conclusions about addiction and about uh, we're going to talk about antidepressants here in a minute. This is the model. This is the, the view of people that explains why medications are often prescribed. But notice, if, if you get the model of persons wrong, your conclusions are automatically tainted, aren't they? Because you're applying the wrong model. It's not necessarily that, that the scientific data has failed. It's that the theory that we're assuming that we put the science into is flawed. And uh, that's why a a biblical counselor committed to biblical anthropology and a secular counselor committed to secular anthropology can look at the same data, but because they have two very different views of human nature, they come to two different conclusions. So that model is really critical. Okay, Uh, for the one embracing naturalism, the brain is the final and ultimate cause of behavior, right? We understand that. Uh, Okay, Um, let's go back to, to applying this to... Um, mental disorders, chemical imbalance, that sort of thing, okay? Is this tracking with you in the notes? You know, I saw that in my notes, and I wonder if it got covered up under the slide. So, okay, so we're on, we're at, we're on, shoot, my notes say depression. Okay, yeah, good, we're good, okay. So why are drugs used? Chemical imbalance, we, we've, we've, we've beat this thing to death, haven't we? Okay, we understand chemical imbalance is a theory. It's not proven. All sorts of researchers today say it was sort of an, an urban legend. It was never approved. We moved on. Nothing to see here. And um, there are reasons why it continues in popular culture. But in the scientific world, at least, this is a model that's long been abandoned. Um, now, what's interesting is when, when the case, I'll give you a little bit of history here. When the case study with Sarah was written, chemical imbalance still was not proven, right? I mean, it's never been proven. What's happened today is there are newer models that are wrestling with, like, depression or anxiety and whatnot, and there are still reasons why they would say, well, we think this, this medication can be effective. 
the difference is at the end of the day it's still the same old argument the, it, the, the argument is there's some sort of brain malfunction and this medication is going to make that better in some way okay um, so if we put this we map this on our naturalistic model the problems in the brain medications are prescribed to treat the problem in the brain supposedly and the feelings and function improve uh, because of that, right? So, so what happens is because drugs are often effective, working backward, it makes it appear that the theory was actually accurate. But uh, as any of you know, that, that's not necessarily good medicine or good science, right? A, a, a practical, pragmatic improvement doesn't prove the disease theory. You, you have to have much more substantial evidence uh, that that's actually true. And, you know, and, and, I mean, that's obvious, right? If, if you have a broken bone and you take ibuprofen and you experience some sort of pain relief, that doesn't prove, right, that, that, cause, that, that uh, you know, you've adequately addressed the broken bone kind of thing. So, all right, so, um, so come back to this. The problem with the chemical imbalance theory, again, we, we've talked about this. Um, you know all these. I'm going to fill the blanks in. You can't again. Brain physiology is so poorly understood. No neurotransmitter imbalance or balance has ever been documented in a living human being. The star there means we actually do have technology now in very, very unique settings where those can be measured. Uh, so maybe the day will come in our lifetime, our kids' lifetime, our grandkids' lifetime, where um, you know you, you pull up to McDonald's, a McDonald's-like facility, and you know, and you get a full neurotransmitter workup. That day may be coming. But we're not there right now, okay? Uh, I'd like a neurotransmitter workup and a latte, okay? Um, that, that, y it might come, you know? But for now, that technology is unavailable to most people, and it's too expensive for the average person struggling with depression. You, you know, watching the commercials and ads, you, you get the idea that you just go to your doctor, they draw some blood, and they go, yep, your serotonin's low, and they write a script. I mean, that, that's kind of the impression you get. And... And your doctor might actually draw blood. Hopefully they are drawing blood because what they're doing there, they're not testing your neurotransmitters. They're testing your other blood chemistry to make sure that there isn't something else going on in your body, a, a disease of some sort that's manifesting itself in some of the depression symptoms that you're experiencing. So they're drawing blood not to confirm depression, but to rule out other disorders or other, other diseases. Does that make sense? So even if that was, even though if you could measure the levels, you don't know what's normal, like a lot of things in um, uh, that world, you know, we're, we're trying to figure out what's normal, what's abnormal. Biblical anthropology teaches that the heart drives the body, including the brain. So our anthropological model would predict that brain physiology will be different in some way for different states of heart. That, that's just what the Bible predicts. But we don't know, we can't necessarily see that um, in that way today. The mechanism of many drugs is unknown or inconclusive. Medications are not remotely close to 100% effective. Uh, 50 to 75%, that's what the literature has consistently said for the last 20 years. 50 to 75% of patients who have a major depressive disorder, which is the, the old um, clinical depression diagnosis, about 50 to 75% of them will improve if you give them an antidepressant. And um, so they're not 100% effective. They are, I, I call that moderately effective. 
but remember, the improvement of feelings as a result of medication does not prove there was a chemical imbalance. That, that's, that's bad scientific theory to, to work backward like that. Uh, you remember Ed Welch's quote about medication isn't actually treating verifiable chemical imbalance. Uh, it's, uh, it's interacting with your brain in a more of a shotgun type fashion. Um, <clears throat> now the Bible... Oh, Slow down, Keith. Uh, the, the Bible emphasizes, if we, if we turn to what does Scripture teach, right? The Bible emphasizes a person's heart response as most important, not changing a person's feeling. Just a footnote on that. When you feel bad, like when I feel bad, I want to feel better. You want to feel better? That's not a bad goal. Uh, saying that we want to help people feel better is not a bad goal. It just can't be the primary goal when there may be other things going on in the heart that are leading to those bad feelings. Remember, um, one of the things the Bible tells us is that the a person's affective feelings, by affective I mean feelings that are the result of what's going on in the inner man, those affective feelings are the result of what I'm believing, thinking, and doing. And therefore, I don't want to ignore my emotions, my affective feelings, nor do I want to just give myself a medication that might better that unpleasant feeling when my heart has not been addressed. Um, have you guys seen the... Uh, I'll, I'll have to show it to you. I'm, you guys are stuck with me like all day tomorrow, so I'll have to bring in um, the video that just popped into my head um, that you'll like. I'll bring the popcorn. So, um, What do we think about here? We, the, the classic text and you can just listen or you can turn there i don't want to beat you to death on this but uh the classic text of depression back in genesis chapter 4 where god talks to cain uh, as his sacrifice is rejected why are you angry why has your countenance fallen if you do well will not your countenance be lifted up so what god is implying to cain is first of all that cain ought to know why he is experiencing his despair, his fallen countenance, his depression, and that, that that depression was directly related to how he responded to the rejection of his sacrifice. And that's very easy to see there. Now, here's the thing. When you're in the midst of feeling depressed, you will not see that connection so clearly. We can look as an outsider, not in the middle of a situation like that, and see that connection. But that's what we're supposed to do. That helps us to say, okay, when I'm in that scenario, or in the case of the case study, when I'm helping Sarah in the case study, that's a, that's a scenario that I want to help her to see. Her feelings are the result of what's going on in that inner man. And then, of course, God tells Cain, if you do what is right, will not your countenance be lifted up? What he's saying is, if you change the inner man, the thinking, beliefs, behavior the motives, the goals, the desires, then those affective feelings will change because the affective feelings are the result of what's going on in the inner man. Um, some notes from last time too. Unbiblical responses to problems often produce unpleasant feelings. We, we get that. that. That's what happened. Cain didn't respond in faith. People use their bad feelings as the reason for their inability to function. And then medication is used to reduce the bad feelings, making the person feel better and thus help him function better and and again though though we want people to feel better we don't want them to ignore the heart issue so the end result in this scenario when the person feels better because of the 
feels better because of the improved feelings. This gives the false impression that the problem is solved. So that's that's the scenario that makes us cautious about using a psychotropic medication. Now, we got Sarah sitting in front of us. She's horribly depressed. She's a young mom. She's got a lot of life going on. And she's saying, do you think I should take this medication to, to feel better? And um, if, if there's one ounce of love in our heart for Sarah, it's like, we want you to feel better. Right? But we've got to stop and pull the car over and say, well, wait a minute, Sarah. But before we, we figure out how to help you feel better, we need to figure out what's going on in your life we need to get to know you we need to understand what happened six months ago and and how have you responded to that and and what's helping you what are you turning to what are you thinking what are you believing how are you responding what other factors are going on and once we get a bigger picture of all of that then we can better counsel her uh in in that situation Um, even though those feelings can be improved through medication the heart is not addressed and that is not uh, that is counterproductive to actual change, right? So, um, so if we if we think about that diagrammatically here, in the world's view, the problems in the brain, we get a medication. There's improved feeling and function, and the end result is the person concludes that the problem's been solved. You know, my arm's still broken, but the ibuprofen makes me feel better, and so I'm I'm good, right? Until I try to go use my arm. So, we we want to be careful. Uh, with that con- that type of thinking, that type of conclusion. And again, you understand, th- this naturalistic perspective makes this theory plausible. If Sarah believes that she has a brain disorder and that her depression is not primarily a spiritual situation, she's going to be drawn to this explanation, isn't she? Remember, what we do to help people always follows our interpretation of why they have the problem. So if you get the model wrong, if you get the theory wrong, then what you want to do to help them will be misguided often. Okay, if we put this, map this now on our biblical uh, view of people here, right? If, if this is what's going on, we recognize that these these bad feelings that our body is producing is affecting our heart and what it's what those bad feelings are supposed to do is to draw attention to and motivate um, and address it. You know, if my arm hurts because it's broken, I, I mean, and I'm not saying like, are you against painkillers, Pastor Keith? No, no, no. Yeah, don't, don't take the analogy that way. What I'm saying is that pain is designed to alert me that there's something wrong with my arm and, and I need to do something about it. And similarly, what we might call spiritual pain or um, unpleasant emotion or um, painful feelings, those are in a similar way designed to alert us to problems in the heart. So if you give a person medication and it makes their feelings uh, go better, what happens to the motivation to address the heart? What happens there? It goes away, doesn't it? And that's when medication can be counterproductive. Our godly sympathy ought to want other people to feel better. But if we give them, or we wouldn't give it to them, if we encourage medication use that has this effect, we have not actually helped them. We've actually hurt them 
because now we're making it harder for them to deal with what's actually going on in the heart. Does that make sense? So we're not talking to Sarah yet. This is all backstory. This is all, this has to be in your head when you hear Sarah so that you're going, okay, I know how to think about this. Uh, I used these last time, uh, Dr. Laura Hendrickson, uh, psychiatrist, which is a medical doctor, turned biblical counselor. She's with the Lord. She, she died at a relatively young age. But um, these, in these quotes, what she's trying to demonstrate is how medication can be counterproductive when we're using them to feel better instead of addressing the heart and the motivation that those painful feelings are designed uh, to motivate us to, to address. So, okay, uh, helpful stuff there. Um, this is a great little book, Will Medicine Stop the Pain, that she co-authored with Elise Fitzpatrick. That, that's really great. And then uh, there's a talk she did at IBCD back, goodness, that was a long time ago. Um, but um, uh, well worth listening to if you haven't heard that. Okay, so how do we think about bad feelings? What are some of the things we're going to want to tell Sarah? One of the things we might want to help her to see is that those depressed feelings that are unpleasant may be an indication that there is something out of sorts in the spiritual part of her. And that's one area, that's one thing we want to tell her is, hey, um, I, I know you want to know about using this antidepressant, but the reality is we can't have that conversation yet because I don't know you well enough yet. One of the possibilities is that the reason you're feeling down and depressed is because there's something spiritually that's going on and I want to help you with that. So we, we kind of, we hit pause. One of the strategies as you write this answer is you're not going to tell Sarah yes or no. You're not going to tell her yes or no. You're going to say that's a great question and I want to circle back to that, but I need to get to know you better. We need to examine what the Bible says about why you're feeling this way. And then once we have that data, then we can figure out if a visit to the doctor is warranted and if you know there's a, a role to... Uh, for an antidepressant to play. Um, we also want to help her to see that Christ and his word are sufficient to help. And in that sense, medication is not truly needed. It's not truly needed. That's not saying it's never helpful, but it's not truly needed. We, we, here's what we're here's what going to say to Sarah. You want to tell her, um, Sarah, I'm so glad you're here. And I am sad to hear that these last six months have been overwhelming and painful. But I've got some good news for you. We have a great Savior. We have someone that the Bible says is full of wisdom and knowledge. We have someone who promises to give grace and mercy to help for our every need. We, we have a Savior who, though he's God in his human nature, sympathizes with us in our weaknesses. So that when you go to him and say, Lord, I'm struggling, Jesus says, I feel for you. Um, so we have a great friend and resource in the Lord Jesus. And Sarah, what I want to do with you is we try to figure out what's going on and you know, down the road, whether a medication is appropriate or not, what I really want to do is to help you to get to know the resources that Christ has for you. And that's where you take the direction of this question. Okay, now, so let's say you do that and, and the question comes up, well, are you saying if Jesus is sufficient, I never need medication or, or it's never 
useful or helpful? Well, there are some situations where medication is wise, according to Scripture. One would be when you have real organic problems. We have lots of uh, passages in Scripture where the Bible substantiates the use of doctors and medications and interventions for medical issues. Uh, One of the guys that wrote one of the New Testament books, Dr. Luke, was a medical doctor. Uh, Paul gave medical advice to Timothy for his stomach ailments. So... um, We would say if there's a real organic medical disease problem, medication might be helpful when it is treating a real organic medical disease issue. And then danger situations. These are situations where medications are wise, not because they're actually treating the problem, but because they're addressing a symptom that is potentially fatal. Okay? So um, if you've got somebody that's experiencing hallucinations, well, we want to figure out why are they experiencing hallucinations. But if, if they are experiencing audible, visual um, phenomenon, especially that is encouraging them to take their own life or to harm somebody else, and there is a medication that can attenuate that, that reality we would say, well, that's a very wise thing to do. We're not, we're not saying that fixes the problem. We're saying that reduces some of the danger so that we can figure out how to better care for the person. That would be a, a wise scenario. Do you have a question? Okay. Um, and then we also recognize, even though that's true, that medication is counterproductive when it's used to treat non-medical problems instead of turning to Christ and his word. That's what Laura Hendrickson's getting at, right? We don't want to... We, we, we don't want Prozac to become a false savior in that regard. And, and sadly, guys, you know, um, let's say we agree this is a scenario where medication might be helpful. We're prone to let that be our functional savior in all sorts of things. It doesn't have to be depression. It can be cancer. It can be, a, um, you know, a, a, a another disease where you're you're pursuing treatment or you know it it is so easy as much as we embrace good medicine as god's kind gift we never want to let that intervention replace the god to whom we ought to depend on for everything okay um and medication can be dangerous Uh, there's there's dependence issues some medications create dependence some uh with side effects, what Laura Hendrickson used to call therapeutic tail chasing. I think I explained that before. Essentially what happens is a medication is given, the person experiences a side effect, and that side effect is misdiagnosed as another symptom of a different disease, and then we medicate that. So you're a therapeutic tail chasing, right? We're, we're, we're medicating a side effect. Um, now, now, a footnote to that. In medicine, in, in actual disease medicine, Sometimes a person's condition is severe enough that they do need a medication. And sometimes that medication that they need does have uh, side effects that are treated with a different medication. That's not what I'm talking about. What I'm talking about is when a side effect of a psychotropic drug is misdiagnosed as another psychological disorder. And that's what we want to try to avoid. Um, side effects, uh, aggression, suicidal thoughts. Uh, th- there was a, an outbreak. 10, 15 years ago of suicides that were happening because people were being put on a certain antidepressant and uh, pharmacologists didn't appreciate fully the risk that that class of antidepressant was causing. So now they've all got labels on them and stuff like that. 
Um, so, have we talked about this before? I, I think we talked about this in um, in track one. So you've had this before. Um, I, I spent some time a while ago just trying to wrestle through what are biblical principles that would guide us regarding whether or not we use medication. And I've just given you some of these here. Uh, you've heard these before, so we'll just wave our hands at them. But when we think about Sarah's question, when when you think in, when this happens in your family and you're going, should we use this medication or not? Or my doc's recommending this. The Bible needs to guide us in that decision, like it ought to guide every decision. So, what principles guide us? The Word of God must be the final authority, right? We we have to land on that. We have to evaluate a person's symptoms in two categories, those that are physical and non-moral versus those that are moral and spiritual. If, um, if a person is experiencing anger, violence, hatred, I can't put that in a bucket that says this is a body issue, this is a non-moral issue, because the Bible says all of those things are moral issues, spiritual issues by nature. Um, so, symptom evaluation is huge as to whether or not I'm going to use a medication or not. And the general principle would be we're not going to medicate for spiritual needs. Um, We want to show Christ-like compassion, right? If Sarah chooses to get on an antidepressant, and that wasn't our advice to her, uh, we're going to keep loving her. When that person comes to you for counseling and she's already on medications or he's already on medications, we're not going to be judgmental. I'm going to be critical about that. We're going to love the person and show compassion, and we're going to show them how Jesus is a better solution. Response to the heart is central. You guys understand that. Is medication a grace in suffering or an aspirin for sin? That's the bottom line you have to, you have to answer. Is it a grace in suffering or an aspirin for sin? Sometimes <laughs> I wish that was clear in every situation, and it's not. But that's really what we're trying to get at, right? We don't want to encourage a counselee to go against their conscience. So let's say you're talking to Sarah and she's got this great friend or this mom or this person in her life that's really pressuring her to take this antidepressant. And she says, counselor, I, I, just, I just can't in good conscience do that for X, Y, or Z. Well, the Bible says you don't encourage her to go against her conscience. Romans 14, if she can't do it in faith, it's sin, even if she might have legitimate freedom to do it. Um, don't assume the role, uh, uh, the mastering edifying principles. Those are just verses that remind us we want to be careful that though we might have freedom to do something, uh, if it doesn't edify or if it tends to enslave us, we want to tap the brakes. We don't want to play the role of physician uh, unless your Dr. Roberts uh, represented, uh, I guess he's in the track three this, uh, uh, this weekend, but uh, unless you are a physician and you're practicing medicine in the context of your practice, you don't have uh, we don't have that jurisdiction. And if we're functioning as a biblical counselor, even if we are a medical doctor, that's not the place to practice medicine. So that's not our role. Um, we want to view suffering in the context of sanctification. We want to help Sarah to see how her hurting and her suffering are part of God's plan for sanctification and always point them to Christ. Okay? So that, so, okay, with all that, that's all introduction. Um, what are you going to do in answering Sarah? Lots of data. Find out if she's been to her doctor, right? We want to definitely do that. 
If not, recommend she go to her doctor uh, to make sure we've ruled out any medical causes or medication issues that might be causing her symptoms. We want to explain to her there are different causes for her feelings, and we need to explore those things. But your role as a biblical counselor is to minister to her help regardless of the cause. We want to agree with her that taking an antidepressant can result in unpleasant side effects. That We want to agree with her on that. And then here's our plan, and you don't have to do exactly what I'm telling you to do, but a plan might go something like this. Let's do some regular counseling to get to know you better, get to know the situation. We want to assure her of Christ's power through the scripture as a sufficient help. And then uh, your commitment is going to be to help her to discover and apply the help available in the word of God, and we'll deal with the question of the medication down the road, right? Once we've done that, we can do that then. As initial homework, we might give her some uh, chapters from that book I mentioned or something like it. And then if there is pushback or questions, we want to be able to equip and address Sarah's concerns further using biblical material. Okay? Easy as pie, right? Okay. Well, we got to keep going, guys. we got, we got to do two of these, but uh, what we just talked about will serve the, the next part of our question here. But... Um, and remember, first person, write like you're talking to Sarah, okay? Um, what about working with a physician? Uh, the, the second part of the, this question, question 15, says, okay, so uh, would you be willing to work with a physician? If so, how would that happen? So let, let's say, here's the scenario. Let's say Sarah goes to her doctor because she hasn't been since the onset of her symptoms, and she finds out that she has some sort of rare disease that uh, one of the effects is these feelings of being down. And it's not like hypothyroidism or something straightforward like that, right? And now here's the scenario. You're caring for her with these feelings as well as now a medical diagnosis, and um, and you're going to walk with her through that. Would you work the, with a physician? And if so, how would you work with a physician? Okay, so in that scenario... Uh, we know, and I'm going to wave my hands because we just reviewed all the verses here. We know that uh, people are compro- com- comprised of a body and heart. We get that. Proper care of the body is encouraged in Scripture, including the proper use of physicians and medications. Uh, Christians should be thankful to the Lord for the common grace of medical professionals, interventions, medicines, which help promote health and body and address physical problems. We also recognize that biblical anthropology and the common grace of medical care, um, biblical counselors encourage counselors to seek proper medical advice and treatment whenever physiological symptoms are present. Often a biblical counselor may encourage a counselee to see a medical doctor prior to the start of counseling when such symptoms are present. And therefore, biblical counselors, when they, you know, we need to remember our lane, right? We should not play the role of a physician. Uh, What does that mean? We don't suggest or challenge a diagnosis. We don't encourage medication changes or treatments, alternative interventions, or giving a medical advice. And I realize... That's very hard to do in today's culture because everybody's an expert because everybody has Google. <laughs> Be aware of GSD, right? Google self-diagnosis. And, and that's not to say, you know, I'm grateful for Google and you can learn stuff, but that's not our lane. That's not our job. We don't say, hey, I was reading online or my sister had the same thing and she found this medication, you know, that's... You can have those conversations at the coffee bar before Sunday school at your church. You're not to have those conversations when you're 
operating as a formal biblical counselor. Okay, there's a jurisdictional line, right? Um, my, my one of our deacons downstairs is our is our deputy, right? He he's acting as a law enforcement professional. Um, when he's on duty, he can do certain things. When he's off duty, he can't do some of those things, right? It's the same thing, right? You have to know the role, even if you're fully qualified in a different realm of life to perform those functions. Um, so we, we don't do that. Um, we uh, encourage counselees to see a medical doctor prior to the start. Let's, let's get caught up here. Here we go. Yes, um, we respect the arena of medical professionals, and we remember that it is both unwise and unethical to speak authoritatively regarding medical issues and counseling. That's why we are thankful. Uh, many of you have doctors in your churches. We have doctors that we consult with here. And uh, we're thankful because there's a time that we do need to consult. We, we do need to say, hey, go, go see this doctor. Go see this uh, reliable doctor. Preferably somebody who's sharing a biblical counseling viewpoint of people. Um, so biblical counselors working with a medical doctor, how does that work? Based on our anthropology, we should be open to doing this. If it's a body and spirit, then we care for the spiritual needs and we ought to be willing to work alongside people that are trained to work on the body needs. Um, again, if you can do a, work with a Christian physician, that's ideal. Uh, when does that happen? Well, when the biblical counselor is forced to work with a physician. We've had this before. We've had court-appointed counseling, and uh, I've been forced to work with psychologists. And you know what? I'm okay with that. Because we're getting to serve somebody. The, the court right here in the Hood County Justice Center believes enough in what we're doing that they send counselees our way as court-appointed counselors. What an opportunity. Who wouldn't want that? Now, that may mean we have to kind of work within the system. We're going to do that without compromising our values. But it's a great opportunity, plus it serves our community, plus it, it, it's a reflection, I think, of the influence God is giving us in our community. Um, yes, ma'am. So You know, and it's Hood County. I mean, it's a different world here, but um, I, it, it's never been an issue, to my knowledge. Everybody's professional and, you know... It, you know, from the secular counselors, from from the secularist perspective, we're just another form of counseling. Some people might be like, oh, you're those weird people that believe in the Bible. But most of them don't. Most of them are like, it's just another counseling ministry. Okay, cool. And, and they don't even think twice about it. Uh, when the counseling has both physical and spiritual components, so things like anorexia, cutting, drug use, those may be occasions to work with a doctor. When a medical problem is part of the counseling scenario, cancer, traumatic traumatic brain injury, something like that. When the counselee is on prescription medications, there's a need to address a medication issue or if they want to come off or whatever. And then um, uh, I have a footnote here when um, if we want, if, if there's a scenario where we are forced to work with a psychologist or a psychiatrist. Again, normally we wouldn't do that, but there are occasions when we need to do that or when, like I said, we get a counselee who's being forced to come and, and we have to work with the psychiatrist or the psychologist. Um, I've given you more information there in Appendix A. Um, and, and just by way of review, because I know this may be new to some of you, remember uh, these terms mean things. A psychiatrist is a medical doctor. They, they have to go to medical school and do all the same things that a, a 
a medical doctor would in other specialties. A biblical counselor may carefully consider working with a psychiatrist to address the medical issues or medication in line with the guidelines above. So a psychiatrist may be the person that you end up being more comfortable working with. And, and guys, most psychiatrists today, this is this is the, it's a seven-minute appointment. The psychiatrist comes in. How are you feeling? What have your symptoms been? We'll make a little bit of tweaking to the script. I'll see you in a month or I'll see you in six months. It, it, it's not, psychiatrists aren't typically doing counseling or not typically doing thought, talk therapy. Now, a psychologist, on the other hand, is usually a state-certified mental health professional who performs psychological assessments, does research, or performs counseling of some type. Normally, we would not work with a psychologist because of the high potential for competing counsel. Um, there are some situations where I've done that. I'll tell you stories where there have been exceptions that we've made to that. You say, okay, so how am I going to work with a physician? How do I do that? First of all, you need to get proper consent and paperwork. If you've never done this, uh, don't, don't be intimidated. You're like, oh, there are all these HIPAA forms. It's not hard. Uh, you have, the, have your counselee go to her doctor, go to his doctor, and say, hey, I need the form so that my counselor can talk to my doctor. What's that? Well, it's it's going to depend to some degree, but yes, it's it's a HIPAA form that's that just gives legal uh, freedom to do that. It's not a big deal; it happens all the time. So, um, but let your counselee be the one to initiate that, and then uh, have your counselee bring back the signed form. And if you want it to go both directions, right? Then uh, you know you, you may have them sign a form saying, "Hey, I can talk to so and so." about this that's fine um, that's not really necessary as once they've done it with with the uh, doctor's form it's fine and then um, from there what are you going to do um, well you, the, your main goal is not going to be to consult doctors are busy right doctors don't have hours and hours and hours and hours to talk to you and me about that what so when we when we have the opportunity to talk to a doctor we want to be respectful of his or her time thanks doc appreciate you caring for my my counselee here uh, she's very grateful for your your care. Uh, I just have a couple of quick questions so that I can better care for her in the counseling office, right? And, and we're off to the races there. We want a major, most of our ministry is not going to be talking to the doctor. It's going to be equipping the counselee to talk with his or her doctor. And I've given you some references there to some books that all have chapters on how to do that. So reference those when that day comes. Again, be respectful and appreciative of the medical professional, the care being offered. You know, we do this. We have medical doctors that we have good relationships with, and you know what they do because they like us? They send counselees to us. Uh, our pediatrician friend that works across the street goes to our church. Um, young parents often go to their pediatrician with parenting problems. And uh, so he's very kind, very charitable, and, you know, works with them. That's not, you know, when Johnny does that, that's not a, really a medical issue. That's more something that, that, you know, requires your training. Oh, I don't know how to... You know, my church has a great counseling ministry. They're right across the street. You know, give Lacey a call. And, and, and so we're grateful to send kids him to him for medical care, and he's grateful to, uh, to send parents our way uh, for counseling. Um, so it's great to have a good relationship with medical professionals in your community. And then uh, establish contact, agree upon goals, and frequency of communication. My experience is that this is not usually a regular thing. Um, I remember years ago, we had a very, very challenging case with a young lady that was on um, 
because she had been in the psych ward, she was on lots of medication. And uh, Dr. Roberts was very kind to consult with us regularly on medication issues and changes that were needed and whatnot. And, and he gave of his time there. That was, that's been pretty rare in my experience. Most of the time you're talking to them maybe one or two times, unless it's a really severe case where you would need to have ongoing um, conversation. Okay, so come back to Sarah's situation. How are we going to answer this question specifically for her? Assuming she's received a medical exam and there are no medical issues that were discovered, then in this case it would not be necessary for the counselor to work with the doctor. There's no, there's no need to do that. If there is a medical problem, then the biblical counselor may consider working with the physician based upon the above guidelines and principles. And then got lots of resources here, resources specific for uh, thinking about antidepressants, resources specific for thinking about working with a physician, and then you've got that appendix I've added there um, that just gives some background on psychology, psychiatry, the history, psychotherapy, uh, and, and that's good information for you, just for you and I to know how does that world operate. Um, okay, questions for me on uh, any of that? Thank you. Great, great, great question. So it, it's not a body issue in terms of that's what's causing it. But if a person has open wounds, infections, yeah, you'd want to deal with a doctor to make sure all that's being handled. Yeah. Yeah. Great. Thank you for clarifying. Yeah. Yeah, um, lousy counsel comes in all shapes and sizes, right? So I think that's a scenario where uh, we, we'd want to push back in a biblical way and say, I appreciate that that person is wanting to think about it spiritually, and I appreciate that they care about you enough to share what they think. But if we, if we measure what they're saying against the word of God, uh, what they're actually telling you is misguided and inappropriate, and here's why. Let, remember, let, let the scripture do the heavy lifting and counseling when it comes to stuff like that. Yes, Mr. Slaughter. Yeah. So depression, if you're going through suicide, can require police If someone is so suicidal, you need police assistance to deal with them. And family members can pressure your counselee to do medication if they're unhelpful to you. Yeah. Good reminders. It, it, we, we need to live our ecclesiology here too, right? Like it, it, we, we need to be a church in all this. So, Okay, um, if you have other questions, come on up here. Otherwise, I don't want to take away from your break. Um, so uh, you can get up, stretch your legs, grab some snacks, and uh, we'll be back here in about 15 minutes for number two.